Okay, why don't we stand and read Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the God. And the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Please be seated. Well, as we dive into God's Word this morning, we're continuing to explore the question of what is the gospel? What is God's good news for his creation? As you can tell by the reading, the lesson we're learning today comes from Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And so I've titled this, The Offer of Victory. The good news is that Jesus offers you and I victory. Before we look at the passage though, I do want to make four what I believe to be important observations by way of introduction. And so, in some ways, this could be these four points or sermons in and of themselves. So just bear with me as we go through these. First one is this. When I was attending Regent College, my professor, Darrell Daunton, made this claim. He said, when I read this story, I feel like I'm standing on holy ground. When I read this story, I feel like I'm standing on holy ground. Why? This story that's contained in the Bible could only come from Jesus himself. There were no eyewitnesses when this happened. When the rest of the Bible is recorded, you know, in the book of Luke, Luke says, Theophilus, I'm going to tell you about the things that I've carefully heard and seen. Right? And the, and, and the disciples saw things happening. And then they recorded them. There were no people to witness this temptation. Jesus was all alone. So how would it have become known? It's as if he took a personal page out of his journal and sat down one day and told the disciples. I could see the scene, you know, picture the scene, sitting on a campfire, a little boat, with Jesus. It's 11 o'clock at night. A lot of you have had a tough day with temptation at the beach and different places, dealing with ordinary neighbors. And so you go to Jesus, hey, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, we were really tempted today to like lash out at so-and-so or to look at such-and-such on the beach. I mean, we're really dealing with this, like, how do you deal with that? Like, have you ever had to deal with temptation? 
you probably haven't, being the Messiah and all. And Jesus says, let me tell you a little story. Second, the context of what happened is before is super critical. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, Jesus is baptized. And it says there that the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. When Jesus was baptized, he was 30, and he was inaugurated into ministry through this baptism. It was like a ceremony, if you will. He was a carpenter, if you remember, for the first years of his life. His time now had come to end carpentry and go into fulfilling the mission that God had for him. And so this key event occurs, a voice from heaven comes and says, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. And the Father's declaration came from two Old Testament texts to fulfill prophecy. You are my son, comes from Psalm chapter 2. And he says, today I have become your father. The context is the nations, the nations are rebelling against God and his kingly rule. And so the, the father is promises in that. God promises, one day a son is going to come from me who will one day rule the nations that are in rebellion against me. So when he makes a declaration, you are my son, the Jews are going to go, oh my goodness, the father has spoken, this is the guy who's come to rule the nations. Then he says, in whom I'm well pleased. This comes from Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Now here's what's amazing. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. What happens at the baptism? The Father says, This is my Son, who will rule the nations. He is my servant, in whom I am well pleased. I will, and the Spirit of God falls on him at his baptism, and declares him to be the one. And the people around should go, Oh my goodness, here is the Messiah, here is the Christ, here comes the Kingdom of God. As a public declaration of who he was. Jesus later, though, tells us what he thought servanthood meant. Again, we've talked about this a lot through Easter. What does it mean for the one to rule the nation? What's it mean for the Jewish people, based on what we learned at Easter, for him to be the servant, to rule the nations? Military victory, war. Look at what Jesus says about servanthood later on in his ministry. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the ransom of many. How does Jesus understand servanthood? He's going to lay his life down for people. He's going to die for their sins. How is he going to inherit the nations? By laying his life down and going to the cross. That's the pathway for Jesus to inherit the nations, servanthood laying his life down. This is why what happens next in the temptation is so incredible. He goes from hearing a loving voice from the heights of heavens to the hateful voice from the pits of hell. 
And what does he do, the enemy? He challenges Jesus in his identity. Verse 3, if you are the Son of God. Verse 5, if you are the Son of God. And he challenges the mission when he comes to the third temptation. And he says to them, I want you to fall down and worship me. And I'll give you these kingdoms. The devil wants Jesus to inherit the kingdoms. How? Through the devil giving it to him and his agenda in his way. It's going to be a fulfillment or a failure to fulfill what servanthood is to look like to lay his life down. And so what what he's offering, the devil's offering him, is a challenge to his identity and a challenge to the mission that the Father has sent him on. Real temptations. He goes from a spiritual high in the baptism to a spiritual low in the wilderness. And thirdly, this is an observation I was tempted to leave out, no pun intended. But notice who orchestrated this whole thing. The Holy Spirit in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This was the Holy Spirit's doing. Now, we have to ask ourselves what's going on here. In light of passages like James 4.13, James 4.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But yet, it says the Holy Spirit led him up into the desert to be tempted. So do we have a contradiction? Well, the answer is no. The word tempted, used in Matthew, is the word perazo in Greek. It means to make proof of, or to put to the proof. Primarily, it means to test someone. So it's used other places in the scriptures in a, in a positive sense. Matthew 16, 1, they came to Jesus to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign. So they weren't tempting him, they were just they were testing him, making proof, wanting him to give proof that he was the Messiah. In 2 Corinthians 13:5, Paul says to the Corinthians, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Show proof, make proof of. So the purpose of testing in the Bible when God is in charge is often to prove or improve our faith. And so two fantastic examples of that are Job and Abraham. Job being allowed to be tested because the devil said, if you, if you allow me to do this and to do that, he will deny you. And God says, okay, go for it. And what did happen? Job did not deny him. Abraham, he tested him with his son Isaac. And after he was done, he said, now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld your only son. So the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into the desert to test him, to make proof of his faith, to find out where the rubber hits the road. Is he going to be the Messiah the way God intended? Or is he going to fall like Adam and the rest of humanity? And that's the context. 
Fourth and finally, an observation before we get into the text. I didn't realize this to the same degree because I put so much stress on the cross. Um, and I'm not sure if you'll feel the same way as me, but I didn't realize the magnitude of this event. Do you understand how the future of the entire world is at stake in this moment, in these 40 days? Your eternity, that as you sit here right now, if Jesus failed in the desert, you and I would not be going to glory. Even if he went to the cross. The wages of sin is death. If Jesus sins, he cannot be the sacrifice for death. If he sins here and he repents and goes to the cross, it means nothing. He would not be resurrected from the dead. He'd be in the grave like the rest of us. He has to have the God has to go right immediately to have Jesus. The Father wants Jesus right away to go against the number one enemy that all humanity has to face. Death was brought into the world by Satan himself. And so his first course of business in ministry is to go head to head with the one who destroyed everything that God set in motion. I hope you understand the magnitude of this event. I sure came to appreciation for it as I looked into it more. So now, let's, with those four points, now let's look at the nature of the test. He goes three rounds with the devil, and they're all verbs, they're all action words that he's asked to do. Number one, I want you to turn. Round two, I want you to throw. And round three, I want you to bow. All action words, I want you to turn, I want you to throw, I want you to bow. So round number one, verse three and four. Actually, I'll start at verse 1 and work through to 3 and 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Notice the craftiness of the devil here. When does he come to Jesus? When he's hungry. It says he became hungry. So if you're in the desert for 40 days, and you go and fast, in the first six hours, you're probably not going to be that hungry. The devil comes when he's hungry. When he's flesh, the part of you that craves things, when that part of your being was in its weakest moment. He wasn't in a place of what I call spiritual high, height or spiritual highness on a, on, a, on a, you know, riding that wave, if you will, a place of vulnerability and weakness. And because Satan knows he's hungry, he takes the opportunity to challenge him and the first thing he does is he questions the identity of who he was. He questions his identity. 
if you are the Son of God. Satan knew who Jesus was. But he also knew that as God's Son, it would be tempting to get him to, to manipulate him to try to change the, uh, the circumstances that he was facing. He knew as God's son, he could turn bread in, or stone into bread. And what he was asking of the Lord was to prove it. He wanted him to take matters into his own hands and change this desperate situation of hunger into fulfillment. I could just picture the scene. The devil would say something like this. You know, Jesus, I heard what was said about you at the baptism. I know you're the son whom the Father is well pleased. But if that's really the case, if you really are that son, why would you continue to live in such pitiful circumstances? Why would you allow yourself to go hungry? Why don't you change everything and fulfill and satisfy the very thing that you want? Use your status Use your authority. Take advantage of those things. Take charge. It looks like God's forsaking you. Use your authority. And so what does Jesus say? Man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now his response comes from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, I want you to see what's happening in that context in chapter 8. Moses is speaking to Israel as they're about to enter Canaan. And so he's going back 40 years to talk to them. And he says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might teach you to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. God allowed Israel to hunger in the desert so that when he, through his word, promised him, promised them that he would feed them, and then followed through on his word that they would learn to trust him. This is important because this occurs before Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given. So, you see what's happening here. Israel, I'm going to make a promise to you with my word that you will, I'm going to let you go hungry, but then I'm going to make a promise to you to fulfill it, and then when I do, you're going to learn that my word is trustworthy. So the provisionary care is sort of secondary. It's about gaining trust in the Word of God and his, in His mouth, what He has to say. So when the commandments come and they, they get laid down, the people go, oh, I know these commands sound a little bit goofy to me, but I'm willing to follow them because I've already learned that God is trustworthy. He's already provided for us, and I see the benefit of following His ways. So these commandments, even though I may not know how they work out in my life, are worth following. He's one who's going to take care of me. 
The focus then was not so much on the food, but on doing God's will. And through doing God's will, they would have confidence that God would always provide. And this is why Jesus responded the way he did. He was like Israel in a state of hunger. Instead of focusing on the physical cravings and the need to fulfill those, and perhaps even worrying about where the next meal was going to come from, he recognized it's more important to obey his Father and follow his commands. Fulfill the mission of the cross the way that God laid it out for him to follow. And he was, here's the key, he was not going to satisfy the flesh in order to compromise his spiritual well-being. Say that again. He was not willing to satisfy his flesh in order to compromise the spiritual well-being. God's word to him was the most critical thing needed for sustaining his life. That's important for us because of many desires pulling us away from the Lord, our flesh desires so many things that are contrary to God's way. I'll just read a few of them in Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, which is any sexual union outside of a marriage relationship. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, which is another way of saying illicit drugs, or uh, uh, um, embracing of the occult, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild party, parties, and other sins like these. The devil will come to you and say, you know what, you need to pursue all of these things. Your flesh wants to go after these things because they're about pleasure and about justice and about your rights and about yourself and not laying it down your life. And Jesus gives us a model to say, no, 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 no. Man does not live on bread alone, the fleshly desires, but on the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is our model for dealing with temptation in the flesh. How about throw? Round number two. Read verses five through seven with me. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand in the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a unique temptation compared to the first one because this is the first time that Satan tempts Jesus by using the Word of God. That should be a warning to us. Just because the Word of God is quoted doesn't mean it's, it's actually the way that God intended it. That's why there's so many warnings about false teachers. And lots of people who wear religious hats that say God says this and God says that, and he says nothing of the, of the like. Satan is not afraid to use the word of God. In fact, we should know that from Genesis chapter like 3. Because when he tempted Eve, he used the word of God, the only command they had about eating from the tree. He's not afraid to play around with God's word. He loves, he loves religion. And he knows the word of God inside and out so well that he also knows how to misquote it and knows what angle to take to get away from the truth of it. 
But anyway, that's a, another huge, that's a sermon in and of itself. <laughs> but it's like, it's like Satan came up to the, the Lord and said this, okay, Jesus, so you just quoted Deuteronomy, that man should not, um, that man should live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So I see that you like God's word. So let me come up here and let me show you and talk to you more about God's word. You want to play that field? I'll play that field. And so he quotes from Psalm 91. Psalm 91. And now, there are many within Christianity that believe that what he was doing was tempting Jesus to show off. To jump off this building and sort of like show off the people around him. Do something spectacular. Maybe even draw a crowd. I would suggest that's actually not what's going on here. Not what's going on here. Satan, again, was quoted from Psalm 91. Let's look at Psalm 91 in the first couple of verses to gain the context. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. What is the context of Psalm 91? It's about trusting in the Lord. Resting in Him. He is the fortress in whom you trust. When Satan came to him, was he asking him to trust his father? No. He wanted to put his father to the test. He wanted the father to prove his love. Remember what he said? If you are the Son of God. What did the Father already say? You are my Son, and who I am well pleased. There's nothing for the Lord to prove in terms of like trying to um, earn his, uh, his favor, his Father's favor. He says, if you're the Son of God, throw, your down, throw yourself down. In other words, let's see if God really loves you, because if he, proof will be when you jump off the building and do a swan dive and he catches you, that'll be proof that he actually loves you. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works. He says, I'm not going to put my God, my Father, to the test. I'm not going to force him to act, to prove his love to me, to, to me. So Satan is not only going after his identity, he's actually questioning the Father's commitment to him. If your Father really loved you, he'll save you. Again, picture the scene. Satan goes up to the Lord and says, I heard what your father said about you at the baptism, and that he loves you. If he really loves you, why don't you do a quick swan dive to find out? And just so you know, that would have been quite the swan dive. Commentators say that that was uh, the southeast corner of the temple, which overlooked the Kidron Valley, which was a 450 foot drop. So that'd be quite the jump before the angels came down and swooped him up. And what does Jesus say? Uh, you're not going to test my Lord that way. You're not going to have me test him. And what does he do? He quotes once again in Deuteronomy. So let's look at the context of Israel in Deuteronomy. We move from manna to water. So, in Deuteronomy 6, 16, it says, 
do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. This is Moses again speaking to Israel. So what happened at Massa? Well, in Exodus 17, we get the answer. The Israelites are complaining there's no water in the wilderness. The desert's barren and they're thirsty. So they put the Lord to the test by demanding, demanding that Moses produce it. So they don't go to Moses and say, would you, uh, Moses, listen, like we're really dying here. We've learned our lessons from the manna that God provides. Would you beseech the Lord on our behalf and ask him kindly to provide and tell him that we already trust him because we've seen him provide us the food? And so, like, you know, let's let's go through this together and go in and, like, you know, use the relationship you have with him to, to meet our requests. Or even going to them privately in prayer. None of that stuff. They demand the Lord produce water. And so it's named Massa because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us? In other words, does, does God really love us? Even though he just rescued them from the plagues, or from Pharaoh in Egypt, and delivered them to the Red Sea, does God really love us? Isn't that what Satan is doing? Jesus, if God really loved you, force him to prove himself and his love to you. Jump off and let him catch you. And Jesus says, I don't do that. I'm not putting my Lord in a place where I'm going to force him to prove his love to me. I stand on the commitment he made to me at the baptism. I am his son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now we need to be careful not to do this as well. I am all for God's grace, and I'm all for God's mercy, and I'm one who's experienced it multiple times in my own life when I screwed up. But, may we never be in a place where we think because of God is so gracious and merciful and so forgiving, that we put him in positions where we force him to rescue us. So the word of the Lord says this, and we go, well, I know it says that, but I'm going to do this anyway, because God's gracious, he's kind. Entering into relationships that the Word of God doesn't support. Entering into partnerships that the Word of the Lord doesn't support. We're having a lazy work ethic, thinking, well, God promises to take care of me, but then having this extremely lazy work ethic where we don't actually do anything. Making financial decisions, thinking God will rescue us with no biblical basis or grounds to make those financial decisions on, and so on and so on, and so on, and so on. May we be people that never put the Lord to the test and force Him to rescue us and to prove His love to us. We have to honor the, the, the words from the Scriptures and primarily, make, well not primarily, fully make our decisions from there. How about round three, bow, verses eight through 10. Again, the devil took him into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What's important about this is we've already seen this earlier in my introduction. The kingdoms and nations that Satan was offering him were already promised to Jesus in Psalm 2. Remember my introduction? 
Psalm 2, who was going to inherit the nations? His son. They're already promised to him, but it has to be the Father's way to inherit them. So let's look at it in more detail. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and their rulers stand together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw up the shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, he rebukes them, saying, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. I will, produce, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Who is he going to gain the nations from? The Father. It's already prophecy that you're to go to him and you will get them. What does the Satan say? He, he says, you want the kingdoms? You want the nations? All you have to do is bow down and worship and serve me. Serve me. And we know what Jesus thinks of servants, servanthood. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. The ransom is the cross of Christ. The purchase paid, the blood. And that's going to be accomplished through suffering. That's how he's going to inherit the nations, through suffering, by going to the cross. Because his kingdom is primarily spiritual. It's about saving us from our sins and giving us eternal life. You see how powerful this temptation would be, family? He was, he was he's saying this to the Lord. You can have what God promised without going to the cross. You can have what God promised without suffering. It's yours. And later on, we know this was a real temptation for Jesus. Two other places at the end of his life, he said this in his private prayer life. I think actually the first one was to the disciples. He said, I have a baptism to go, and I am distressed until it is accomplished. In the garden, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. So he already, to his disciples in his private prayer life, is saying, this is a distressing, brutal thing that I'm facing, and it's emotionally ripping me apart. You see how powerful this temptation is, first thing in his ministry? When he's offering the kingdoms, he says, you can have this without paying Jesus. You can have my promise without laying your life down. You can have my promise the easy way. And so Jesus responds, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Another quote from Deuteronomy. This time, in chapter 6, verses 13 to 14. And this is awesome. Remember last week at the child dedications? I used Deuteronomy 6 of the child dedication passage. The Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is our God. You shall worship Him with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Teach these commands to your children to obey them and diligently follow them when you lay down, wake up, and so on and so forth. That's Judges verses 1 through 6. But look how it continues. Fear the Lord your God. Serve Him only and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods. And so Jesus is going back to the Shema. 
when Israel stands a claim to honor God fully with their lives and obey only his commands and reject idolatry. And so Jesus quotes this against the devil because he wants to be what? He wants, the devil wants to be followed. He wants to be followed like other gods. He's the source of those other gods. He wants to be followed. He wants to be served. He wants to be worshipped. And so he goes back to Israel's declaration and says, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that in my life. In my life. Work that way. It's God and God only. Jesus was saying, I'll take the hard road, even if it means laying down my life at all costs. Father, your plan to save sinners through the cross and through suffering is worth it. And the same temptation comes our way, doesn't it? Satan comes and says, I know what the Lord says, but you can take shortcuts, you know. You don't have to go that hard way. You don't have to go the way of, like, self-denial. You don't have to go through the laying down your life. My way is much easier. It's way less costly to you, physically, emotionally, financially. Way less. Just cheat a little. Take the shortcuts. Don't put in the hard work. Don't lay your life down. Avoid the way of the cross and seize the victory the way I offer you. And you know, suffering at times can be part of the Christian life. And actually will be part of the Christian life. There is a promise of hostility and suffering for those who decide to follow Jesus. In Acts 14.22, Paul said, Through many tribulations, hardship and hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's unavoidable as a follower of Jesus. So as you learn more of God's word and his commandments, this is where you and I are going to be challenged. We're going to be challenged. Am I going to follow the way of the devil and take the shortcuts to achieve temporary happiness, avoid pain, or am I going to go the way of the cross? And in Proverbs 14, 12, it says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. There's a way in every one of us that seems right, but it leads to death. May Jesus be our model of the way to life. So after the victory over the devil, Matthew records the final statement in verse 11. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. He was comforted. Comforter after the battle. What's amazing about this is the psalm, Psalm 91, what did Satan say? He says, throw yourself down from here, from here and, and um, says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. It was actually fulfilled here, wasn't it? The angels did come and bear him up and guard him. When? In God's timing and in God's way. Prophecy fulfilled. 
So where's the gospel in all this? Where is the good news? I bring this back to my first point, helping us understand the magnitude of the temptation. I wonder if that's the most important lesson you have to take away from here in some ways, the magnitude. Finally, somebody stood against the enemy and won. Adam failed to stand against the enemy and win. Every human being after Adam failed to stand against the enemy and win. Jesus Christ stands against the enemy and finally wins. And sets the pattern for us on how to live the Christian life. And we put our hope in what he's accomplished for us. Death has met its match. Sin has been vanquished. Without his victory, you and I would have no eternal life. Even if he went to the cross. Because he would never have been resurrected if he sinned in that first temptation. Number two. Jesus provides us with a model for gaining victory over the devil by declaring God's truth as a means of defeating his temptations and lies. How did he gain victory every time he quoted Deuteronomy? And he used passages that matched, that counteracted the lie that the devil was giving him. So he didn't pick some random passage, you know, that didn't fit the situation. It was a passage that spoke to the very nature of the lie and the temptation. Likewise, we are to do the same. I call it renouncing and announcing. As the temptation comes, as the lie comes, to say, I, rena I renounce that. I renounce that lie and I announce, I declare God's truth to this situation. The way that comes about, though, is through knowing the Word of God in context which will take time, but also that's where discipleship and counsel can help. If you're struggling with areas of, in life where you're constantly tempted, and there's constant lies that you're believing, we can help you come up, understand and come up with word, the words from the Lord that can help change your thinking. And why is that important? James 4, 7 says, if you submit to God, which means you go God's way, you, you go to His Word, and surrender to Him, then you resist the devil and he will flee from you. After he went three rounds with Jesus, it says the devil left him. And so Jesus gives us the pattern by which we gain victory in this area. And I know for an absolute fact, every single one of you in here faces temptation and, and believes lies, because I do. I'm in the exact same boat as you. And so he sets the model and the example for how to win. We need true statements that we declare, and then the devil will flee. Another great lesson, we can call on the name of Jesus in times of temptation because he understands that we, what we've gone through, or what we are going through. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18 it says, For since he was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with the weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So we can cry out to the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm coming to you now, even though everything's, like, I just feel like completely powerless. 
because I know that you faced the same struggles in the desert and in other areas of life in those three years, and you never sinned. You think he was never bullied? You think he was never ridiculed or slandered or gossiped about? You ever, do you think he never saw a good-looking woman walk by him? Do you ever think he didn't have the opportunity to be prideful? How about talk about people behind their backs? Or is he good? Went through all of those things and yet never sinned. And so we are to use him and go to him in times where we're struggling and say, Lord, you had victory. Help us gain victory. So that's the good news. But here's some other things just to think about, two more to think about. As part of Satan's strategy to destroy us, he attacks our identity and our purpose. You are the Son of God, and whom I'm all pleased, if you are the Son of God. Right? And the purpose, I'll give you the nations. You don't have to go to the cross, you don't have to suffer, I'm going to do it my way. This is really important because as Christian people, like the, the, the scripture promises that the devil's not going to leave you alone. 1 Peter 5, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. He's talking to the Christian community, not the non-Christian community there. Number two, he's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. He's not going to leave us alone. If he didn't leave Jesus alone, he's not going like, to just ignore us. And that's why there's so many commands about how to do battle with them. Again, he goes after your identity and your purpose, so doesn't he? How many times have you heard this voice go through your head? You know, if you were truly a Christian, you wouldn't be like that. You know that, right? You really think you're a child of God? Like, how about this voice? You know, you don't really measure up, you know that, right? God's not really proud of you. Like, you have to do something to earn His favor. He doesn't love you just because of who you are and the fact that He died on the cross for you. You have to do something to earn His favor. Your identity is not just found solely in the sacrifice of the cross. Your identity is found in trying to prove that your life, day in, day out. Your life doesn't make a difference. You'd be better off dead. This strategy is destroying you. Attack your identity. Attack your purpose. Jesus again is the model. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. What does the scripture say about your identity in Jesus Christ? Every single New Testament book does he define you anywhere in the New Testament with words of condemnation? Not one place. To the saints who are in Corinth. To those who are overcomers. You are a new creation in Christ. You are a child of God. 
You're a friend of Jesus. And there's, I could give you a hundred, a hundred titles. And if you, don't, if you think I'm lying, I'll give you a sheet with a hundred names on it. A hundred of your identity in Jesus Christ. Those things that you don't measure up, if you're only, if you, you know, you're not much of a Christian, that's all lies from the pits of hell. Stand strong in the Lord Jesus. And use Him as your model to gain victory. Trust His Word, trust Him, and trust what He says about you. And finally, while God never tempts us, He can use tests to prove and improve our faith. The Lord walked in to that, temp, that testing, didn't He? He walked into the testing, and He walked out the victor. Abraham walked into testing, walked out the victor. James, or Job walked into testing and walked out the victor. So let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Your word is so good, so rich. And your spirit's alive and well here this morning as, he's, as you're teaching us, Lord, what it is that you want us to hear and how it's impacting our own lives. I pray, God, as we go forward, Lord, that we actually, we really embrace this truth and that we, we spend the time with you necessary to walk through our lives where we've been hurt and where the pain are, just to read the Bible and go, Lord, what, what words, what stories, what passages, what phrases, what, what do you have for us that will just help bring victory? Lord, be active in every single person's life here this week as we seek to be uh, recovered and, and to um, be healed, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Just be really active, Lord. It maybe comes even not through personal devotions. It might come through another conversation or Bible study or it might come through listening to a radio program or a song. Lord, just use, use any source of your truth to, to bring us hope and to bring us encouragement and a real strong sense of our identity in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.